0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu, That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushdini Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushdini Published by Calcedon Ross House Books, P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by R.J. Rushdini. Chapter 15, Confession and Indulgence. The origins of confession are clearly biblical. Key texts are Leviticus 5, 1-19, see especially verses 5 and 6, Deuteronomy 26, 4-5, and Numbers 5, 5 5-7. In this latter text we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, When a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit, to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done, and he shall recompense his trespass with the principal thereof, and add unto it the fifth part thereof, and give unto it, and give it unto him against whom he has trespassed. End quote. From Numbers five five to seven. What we see here clearly is first that all sin is an offense against God because it is His law which has been broken. Second. All sin must be confessed to God against whom we have offended. Third, there is no penalty-free sinning, no costless forgiveness. The cost to God is the atoning death of Christ. The cost to us, with God's forgiveness through Christ, is restitution to the person against whom we have sinned. Fourth, this confession has a purpose. Its goal is restoration, by means of confession and restitution in two directions, Godward and manward. By means of confession, peace is to be restored. The purpose of confession and restitution is the healing of man and society. Sin brings death, whereas atonement, confession and restitution give healing, peace and life. This should enable us to recognize why the Roman Catholic confessional system has been so important. Its history is marked by greater faithfulness and also by greater abuse. The question of confession, restitution and restoration was fundamental to the Reformation. The Reformation began on the issue of an abuse of the confessional system, indulgences. The word indulgences comes from the Latin indulgentia, from indulgio, to be kind or tender, meaning in time, the remission of a tax or debt. It came to mean release from punishment by the kindness and mercy of God. The definition of indulgences by W.H. Kent is, quote An indulgence is the extra-sacramental remission of the temporal punishment due in God's justice to sin that has been forgiven, which remission is granted by the Church in the exercise of the power of the keys through the application of the superabundant merits of Christ and the saints, and for some just and reasonable motive." Theologically, this definition gives us a perspective which is not biblical. However, in Luther's day, indulgences went beyond this definition. Indulgences were sold promising a plenary and perfect remission of all sins, a restoration to the state of innocence enjoyed in baptism, a relief from all the pains of purgatory, and all this without the usual formalities of confession. It was reported that the indulgence preacher, Johann Tetzel, O.P., had said that pagan indulgences could absolve a man who had violated the Mother of God. Theologically, while Roman Catholic scholars agree that abuses in indulgences existed in Luther's day, the concept of indulgences is not abandoned. In 1985, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger said, When asked if the concept of indulgences had disappeared from religious practice and from the official catechesis, I would not say disappeared, but it has lost a lot of meaning since it is not plausible in terms of today's thinking. But catechesis has no right to surrender the concept. Indulgences were a key issue between Luther and Rome to the very end. First, Luther objected to them as a devout Catholic deeply concerned with the integrity of the confessional. Second, he objected to them as a Protestant because of his concern for the integrity of the confessional. It is interesting to note that what the official curial theologian at the direction of Pope Leo X had to say. He accused Luther of a procedural error. If, as Luther charged the preachers of indulgences were guilty, and Sylvester Priarius did not believe so, then Luther had violated the rule of fraternal correction by divulging their mistakes to the public. Priarius had many Protestant successors, men who believe that corrupt procedures are more important than the truth. Correct procedures are more important than the truth. As a monk, Luther had confessed earnestly and faithfully, but with no sense of peace. According to Hendricks, his important study, In Luther's memory, his internal struggle with confession was very much related to papal authority. Indulgences released a man from the obligation to make restitution. In time, certain developments occurred with this practice. First, In time, indulgences applied not simply to specific offences but became plenary or full. In 1095, Pope Urban granted a full or plenary indulgence to all who for religious reasons participated in the First Crusade. This indulgence offered forgiveness of sins and release from all temporal penalties. Second, indulgences were added to the powers and prerogatives of the papacy. In 1343, Pope Clement VI made an official dogma of the idea of the treasury of merit in the Church. Third, indulgences were granted to the deceased who were in purgatory. Tetzel had a little rhyming slogan for this. Quote, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. End quote. Fourth, By means of a contribution to a specific cause of the Church, letters of indulgence could be secured. As far as the people were concerned, it was an outright purchase. When Luther was condemned by the Pope, the central concern of the condemnation was Luther's views on the sacrament of penance and on indulgence. In other words, the conflict between Luther and the papacy began and ended with issues relating to the confession. There were some Catholics who would, up to a point, have assented to Luther's view of justification, but his view of the confessional was the key point of offence. It was the failure of confession to give Luther peace that led him to his doctrine of justification. As a result, Luther, in his view of confession, was concerned with separating the act from the control of the Church. Quote, Of the three ingredients of penance, he recognised, of course, the need for contrition and looked upon confession as useful, provided it was not institutionalised. The drastic point was with regard to absolution, which he said is only a declaration by man of what God has decreed in heaven, and not a ratification by God of what man has ruled on earth. End quote. Luther also opposed the complete enumeration of sins in confession. This did not mean that serious and cultural offences were to be glided over with generalities. We can thus say that while private confession, whether to a person or to God directly, is necessary, this does not make it mandatory. Where mandatory, the power of the receiving human agency is greatly enhanced. Where it is seen as necessary, the sinner finds that he must deal not necessarily with a pastor or the church, but necessarily with God and with his sin, and he must make restitution in terms of God's law. At the same time, we must remember that simple awareness of our sins is not to be equated with repentance. Luther wrote, To teach that repentance is to be reached by merely meditating upon sin and its consequences is lying, stinking, reducing hypocrisy. End quote. Luther also wrote, quote, There is no doubt that confession is necessary and commanded by God. Thus we read in Matthew 3, They were baptized of John in Jordan, confessing their sins. And in 1 John 1, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If the saints may not deny their sin, how much more ought those who are guilty of open and great sins to make confession? But more effectively, of all does Matthew 18 prove the institution of confession, in which passage Christ teaches that a sinning brother should be rebuked, healed before the church, and accused, and if he will not hear, excommunicated. But he hears when, heeding the rebuke, he acknowledges and confesses his sin. Of private confession, which is now observed, I am heartily in favour, even though it cannot be proved from the Scriptures, it is useful and necessary, nor would I have it abolished. Nay, I rejoice that it exists in the Church of Christ, for it is a cure without an equal for distressed consciences. For when we have laid bare our conscience to our brother, and privately made known to him the evil that lurked within, we receive from our brother's lips the word of comfort spoken by God himself. And, if we accept it in faith, we find peace in the mercy of God speaking to us through our brother. Quote. The problem that exists in regard to confession is a very serious one. It can greatly increase the power and control of the church over the people. However, a non-confessing people can grow callous to its own sinning and indifferent to the need for restitution. The problem is a very serious one. Of all solutions, it must be said that, in a fallen and sinful world, no solutions can eliminate any problem entirely. This does not mean that biblical solutions must not be sought. This is the end of chapter 15.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.